Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God I would lay on your hearts today comes from the 11th chapter of the book of Romans, verses 13 to 15 and 29 to 32, as follows. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. So far the Holy Word. Dear friends in Christ, fellow redeemed, They say that most of us walk around all day long in a state of dehydration. That we don't drink as much water as we should. And I don't know, I suppose when it's 95 or close to 100 here in the valley, you really should be drinking that eight tall glasses of water at least every day so that your body stays hydrated, continues to work correctly for you. I know bad things happen when dehydration set in. If we all walk around in a state of dehydration most of the time, we should really try and remedy that. I'm probably as uh, uh, one of the worst offenders of not drinking as much water as I should. But there's another spiritual side to our dehydration problem, and it has to do with the fact that by nature we are conceived and born in sin. We inherited sin from our parents, Adam and Eve, who fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. We have brought that with us. We're in a state of spiritual dehydration to the point of, you remember in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, where he spoke of the valley of the dry bones, and they were very dry bones. And the Lord told Ezekiel to go in there and to preach to these bones. And they all came together with a great rattling. And then the flesh came on them. And then everything filled in. And all that is a picture of what, of how, of God's mercy towards us and the power that is contained in God's Word to quench our spiritual thirst, to hydrate us up to the point where we should be, where God wants us to be. Paul, using these verses for us today inspired by the Holy Spirit records for us the mercy of God and I'm going to bar- I'm going to use the theme God's tall glass of mercy God's mercy a good definition of mercy is divine pity mercy is different from grace see mercy is the source of God's grace. Kind of like if you have an artesian well that springs up from the ground and you can just take a cup and drink right out of it. See, that's God's mercy, His divine pity. It's that well of totally God having pity on us in our condition. The fact that we are spiritually dead, dry bones. 
God in his divine pity wells up with a plan. From that well, from that mercy of God flows his grace. So you see the source is God's pity. His undeserved kindness, his grace is the river that flows from his mercy. It's a tall glass and it quenches the spiritual thirst of you and me and every believer everywhere. Paul speaks of it here using the fact that uh, uh, the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Paul, who was born a Jew, raised in the Jewish community, became a Pharisee, of the, one of the most strict Pharisees. He talks about how Jesus was sent to the Jews and they rejected him. And so God sent the message out through the apostles. He was primarily an, uh, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles to tell the non-Jews that God's mercy is for everyone. And so using the disobedience of the Jews and using the disobedience of the non-Jews and how God's mercy is for everyone, Paul brings this all together in one. He shows us God's tall glass of mercy. He, God provokes in order to save. God bankrupts in order to make rich. It's all part of his plan, his mercy. A couple of weeks back we had a, a reading from Isaiah chapter 55. Do you remember? It goes like this. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's an invitation to us to eat and drink at God's table. To quench our thirst, our spiritual thirst without having to spend a cent on our part. Because, see, it all comes from God. And God uses what He already has established, His church here, to try to, try to provoke others to jealousy so that they will believe and hear the Word and believe and be saved. The Apostle Paul is referring to his own brethren when he says... I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. Paul's job, even though he was born a Jew and raised a Jew, trained by Jesus through direct revelation to become an apostle, he was sent out to the non-Jews primarily. He, it's the apostle Paul who wrote many of the letters in the New Testament. You know, the, the epistles, the, Ro, Ro, the letter to the Romans, the uh, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. These are all books that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote to the different congregations that the Lord had caused him to go through in his three missionary journeys to the non-Jews. And so he writes these letters to these different congregations. The Lord had used him among the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And Paul was excited about magnifying that ministry to make much of it, to absolutely get things just burning with the Holy Spirit so that his countrymen, his kinsmen, the Jews, who had rejected God's word, who had, they had rejected Christ, you know the account, they crucified him, they said his blood be on us and on our children, and they rejected the gospel message, and they continued to reject Jesus, they still do today, they reject the Messiah. But Paul says, maybe they'll see how the word of God works among the Gentiles. Maybe that will 
provoke them to jealousy. Maybe that will convince them that they shouldn't have been so hasty to reject this Messiah. Maybe they'll read about it in the Word, in the New Testament. Maybe that New Testament will then work in their hearts with the power of the Spirit to convince them and to give them faith just like it has with you and me and every believer. Do the Jews as a nation turn to Jesus Christ as their Messiah? And the answer is no. But some of them do. Christian Jews, is there such a thing? Absolutely. Praise God. He works faith in their hearts too. The same way He's worked faith in your hearts. That was Paul's desire. To provoke them in order that they might be saved. He says, For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? How will they be accepted back into the sheepfold of God's kingdom unless God's power works in them and through them to give them faith through his word? And won't that be life from the dead? Just like you have enjoyed that gift of life from death, being born in sin, being guilty of sin, being judged by your sins, both inherited and actual sins that you've committed, you're guilty of death. The wages of sin is death. But then comes that gift, that tall glass of God's mercy that He reminds you of every time you hear the proclamation of His good news, of what He's done for you in Jesus His Son. How that Son went to the cross and paid the price of your sins completely. So that now He offers you His sinless life. Now He fills up your cup with God's pity. His tall glass that continues to remind you of the forgiveness of sins you possess and how God sees you as having been justified as His own dear children. Paul magnified his ministry. And we certainly want to do the same in our lives. We want people to see how excited we are about our forgiveness that we have and the forgiveness of sins that we do have, that gospel message that has worked in our hearts will move us to magnify our ministries, to take the chance that the gospel does to lay down the word of God to our friends and family and to those people we have opportunity to meet. We too magnify our ministries through that tall glass of God's mercy that he continually sets before us through his word. Paul continues, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, irrevocable, however you want to pronounce it, irrevocable. They can't be given back. God's calling, God's gifts can't be given back. He gives them. This is not man's gifts or man's calling or man's idea. This is God's gifts to us. It's an important point. His gifts, His calling, calling you to faith, calling me, these are things that originated in Him and they had effect on us. Like in the end of Romans chapter 8, you know, when it talks about who shall separate us from the love of God. It has nothing to do with our love for God. It has everything to do with His love for us. God's mercy, that wellspring, that artesian well has its source in God and works on us. He pours out His gifts, His love on us. 
They're not generated by man's goodness. They do not evaporate by our sinfulness. When you sin, that doesn't drive God's calling away. That doesn't drive God's work, God's gifts away from you. He gives you another gift called confession, where you can go to him and be assured that your sins are forgiven. But don't think that you, by being, by your daily failures to keep God's word, will drive God's gifts and calling away from you. That can't happen. Nothing shall separate us from God's love. Luther said, God's love does not find the object it can love. God's love creates it. Beautiful statement. You could put it another way. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call. God didn't call the nice person. He makes the nice person out of his calling. And he he has done that through you. He has declared you not guilty of your sins. It's all done through his mercy. Really, the last verse sums it up. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And that's where we get part two of this sermon. God uses his mercy uh, to make us rich. First of all, he... he, uh, God has committed them all to disobedience. You know the passage. There is none who does good. No, not one. We get that Bible teaching of uh, inherited sin from that. Original sin, of which we're all guilty. There is none. God has committed them all to disobedience, whether Jew or non-Jew, Gentile. We were, at one point in our lives, totally sinful, unregenerate, disobedient creatures. That's what we're able to do as human beings. We're able to be disobedient. God has committed that to everybody. There's no one who can earn his way to heaven. It doesn't work that way. There's no level of being keeping works and doing good things in your life. Although the majority of religions in this world teach that, don't they? They have some form of what you have to do in order to get to heaven. But the gospel message is that it's already all done. And the reason we do keep the commandments, the reason we do try to honor our father and mother, the reason we do try to protect our neighbor's goods and inheritance and body, and the reason we do worship the Lord isn't because we have to in order to get to heaven. We do all of those things. We keep the commandments because God in his mercy, has already given us heaven. It's already ours. It's a guaranteed thing. God's mercy. From God's mercy flows his grace, his undeserved love and kindness, emphasis on kindness, emphasis on love, the genuine care and concern for your best interest. No matter what's going on in your life, God has through his word encouraged you and continued to remind you that he's there. And you know, usually our Christian lives, it's hidden, isn't it? The truths of Christianity are hidden among the outward things going on in our lives. Consider it. You're alive and you'll never die. The Bible states it and our faith believes it. Yet isn't that hidden under the outward death, the 
illnesses, the corruption that our bodies are, and, and the, the grave we're headed toward, the truth that we're alive and will never die, it's hidden. But our faith believes it because God promises it. There's a lot of things like that. As a Christian, our love for ourselves is hidden under our hate for ourselves. We, we hate the sins we, we commit, but we love God for having taken care of them. And we love God for making us who we are, His own dear children by faith. Glory is hidden under shame. Salvation under damnation. Kingship under exile. Think of that. You know the passage from Revelations. He has made you His kings and priests. And yet it seems like as Christians we're we're exiled. Where is our country? And everybody who's not a Christian will always try and ridicule us for following after Christ and belonging to His kingdom. Where is the kingdom? Well, it seems like we're in exile, but Christianity is hidden like that. Heaven is hidden under hell. Wisdom under foolishness. The word is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for, the, for us who are being saved... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So let's not underestimate God's mercy and His and the grace that flows from that mercy. Let's continue to hydrate our spiritual lives with that rich, powerful, and living water that comes from His Word. God's tall glass of mercy. Let's use our Christian lives to provoke others to jealousy so that they'll want what we have. Faith, confidence in Christ, the certainty of heaven, the answer to every single one of life's problems, victory over every spiritual enemy. We have all those things. Let's magnify our lives. Let's glorify God. Continue to gather together like this, encouraging one another in these great truths so that others will see what we have and might think, wow, let's take another look. Let's read the Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit will work on them too. God has bankrupted us, and we know that we can't begin to hold up a single credit towards the debt that we owed God in sin. But we know He sent Christ. He made Him poor. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might enjoy the riches of God. Jesus became poor that we might become rich. God's tall glass of mercy certainly is the aid that we needed for the lemon that was our soul that we started out with. He's made lemonade out of us lemons. And now he promises that'll and he that promises his presence and grace, and he'll continue to keep us in his word, hydrated with the living water, where one day we will be with him and enjoy that word forever and ever in heaven. Amen.